When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. And right now, via the phone line, because he didn't want to mush his huskies, here's Dr. History. Good morning, Zeb. It is a cold, windy, miserable day out there. Oh, well, yeah, but it's springtime. <laughs> springtime in Idaho. <laughs> right. Well, now that I've given you all this uh, great big uh, fanfare and everything, what are we going to talk about this morning? Well, let me just say hi to a couple of people. Uh, James Patterson is writing a book about the Charbors and the Matador Ranch down in the Texas Panhandle, and he was writing to ask me for information about that. So, James, I will try to find what I can. Uh, I want to say hi to Kathy, who they listen to us when uh, they're on road trips. So, just want to say hi to Kathy. And then uh, there's another one uh, I want to say hi to, and that's Christopher. I usually try to write back to everybody, but for some reason I can't return the email to Christopher. So, if you're out there, Send me another email, and I'll write back to you, I promise. All right. You know, Dr. History is really popular, not only around the world, but we're getting a lot of people that are making uh, inquiries about various stories and everything. What are we going to have on the show this morning? We're going to talk about buffalo. Ah, How's that? Okay. All right. So, you know, most animals, when they're just left alone, they're going to go where they want to go, and they're going to be where they want to be, and it's not always convenient for somebody that's hunting that particular animal. But many historians have argued that buffalo follow a very predictable and regular migrating pattern. And they even had a song written about them. Did you know that? Where the buffalo roam? No, not only that one, but Roger Miller wrote a song about buffalo called You Can't Roller Skate in a Buffalo Herd. Yes, I remember that one. Yes. Well, you know, buffalo occurred, of course, across the landscape in, uh, you know, kind of a, <clears throat> a fairly constant distribution, but with each buffalo more or less belonging to a specific herd. Now, these herds had names usually based on where they spent the winter. For example, there was the Republican herd of the Republican River, the Yellowstone herd of the Yellowstone River, and so on. So they kind of stuck together in certain areas. But to explain the constant movement of buffalo from place to place, people thought that each herd was just perpetually migrating in response to the kind of the ebb and the flow of the seasons. Uh, for example, northward for the summer, southward for the winter. And, for example, the buffalo that wintered in New Mexico would summer in Colorado. Hmm. Buffalo that wintered in Colorado would summer in Montana Buffalo that wintered in Montana would summer in southern Canada, and buffalo that wintered in southern Canada would summer in central Canada. So it's like they just kind of all took the place of whoever left, you know, and just kept moving north. 
What was the, the what was the average, if there is such an answer to a question like this, but what was there perhaps when they were really populated, what was the average size herd of buffalo? Oh, you know, I have no idea, but I'm going to, you know, guess it, they had to be into the thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. Yeah. You know, at their peak, you know, when they were, before they started getting uh, wiped out. Right. But there was one historian that argued that buffalo always, without exception, traveled into the wind. Now, if that was true, every buffalo in the western United States would have ended up over on the uh, coast of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, that didn't really hold true, right? Well, with this uh, wind that we've got here today, it also stands to reason that with a very strong west wind, they'd be uh, drinking out of the Potomac River in Washington, D.C. That's right. But, you know, there was a Sioux Indian that he described when they had a unseasonably warm fall that uh, allowed a big, huge herd of the buffalo to push so far into northern Canada that they weren't able to get back down south in time for the winter. Mm. So uh, they kind of got wiped out by the cold. So, uh, But, you know, the north-south migration theory uh, kind of advocates strictly uh, kind of a latitudinal movement, uh, kind of like a small-scale version of the, uh, like the birds and the ducks mm-hmm. and the geese, you know, mm-hmm. north-south, right. or summer. Uh, of course, ducks and geese, they can travel hundreds of miles in 24 hours and, of course, the buffalo, they just plod along at a slow pace. But, uh, you know, being bound to the land, the buffalo obviously move much more slowly, and they aren't, they're not capable of, uh, of making these long-distance treks. But the buffalo migrated in a much more localized sense. For example, older, more experienced animals led the younger animals across this big uh largely familiar landscape that they'd probably been doing for years, and they tended to respond to the seasonal weather patterns by moving from the higher elevations to the lower elevations in the fall, and, of course, the other way around in the spring. And they tended to seek out open country in good weather, and they shelter uh, sheltered country in bad weather. And when food was scarce, they tended to split apart into small roving bands. Now, that's pretty smart, Zeb. Mm-hmm. Uh, when food was abundant, they tended to come together in this big, huge herds. And if they felt safe and were well-fed, they tended to stay put. If they were hungry or threatened, they tended to move. I mean, it, again, it just makes sense, you know. Uh, but a couple of examples, uh, for example, in Yellowstone National Park, the largest seasonal migration is a midwinter movement toward the north. And that's because there tends to be less snowfall. Mm. So... You know, the buffalo's movement patterns are, are best described by a Canadian historian. His name is Frank Rowe. Uh, the buffalo's movements, according to him, he says, quote, were utterly erratic and unpredictable and might occur regardless of time, place, or season with any number, in any direction, in any manner, under any condition, and for any reason, which is to say... They just did whatever they did for no reason at all. Yeah, and as big as they were, and especially when they had numbers, you don't mess around with the buffalo herd. No, and, you know, you see pictures of buffalo crossing a railroad track, and the train just stopped dead waiting for them to get across. Yeah. But, you know, because the buffalo has no concept of boundaries or private land, 
the Native American buffalo hunters have historically uh, forsaken these concepts as well. So, as more often the case, the hunters have tried to have it both ways. When buffalo were on their land, they defended their land against other trespassers, other tribes. Now, when buffalo were not on their land, they trespassed on the lands of the other tribes. So there was disputes over buffalo hunting grounds that likely dated back to, oh, hundreds, hundreds of years ago, uh, before the arrival of uh, the white man. But for most human history, the wars were probably uh, not all that intense, uh, maybe claimed a few lives, but they were they were pretty particular on not letting uh, other tribes into what they considered their hunting ground. Mm-hmm. Now, all that changed when Cortez introduced the horses to Americas. From then on, you know, the buffalo-related uh, warfare uh, between the tribes. Uh, the horse arrived in Mexico in 1519, and within 30 years, there were thousands of horses in Mexico. By 1700, the Pueblo Indians had acquired the horse through warfare and theft, and they quickly became the master horsemen and horse breeders. Now, the Pueblos made no attempt to keep a lock on their treasure. They established a really good thriving business in the horse trade and helped spread spread the animal throughout the United States as rapidly as the buffalo would later disappear. Now, the Navajo, they got horses from the Pueblos and traded them up the western edge of the Rockies, the Comanche traded them up the eastern edge of the Rockies along the Great Plains. The Nez Perce and the Shoshones, way up around Idaho, obviously up here, uh, had them by the 1730s. The Crows bought horses from the Nez Perce, and the Blackfeet stole from the Crows. There you go. So that's how it kind of moved. And when the Crows had plenty of horses, they herded them toward the Missouri and sold them to tribes over there. Hmm. And the Sioux in the vicinity of the upper Mississippi, uh, on the extreme uh, northeast fringe of the Great Plains, had the horse by about 1750. And their animals had come from tribes to both the south and the west, and by that time there were perhaps more than a million wild horses in the western United States that had no hunters or no owners whatsoever. So you can imagine, you know, with all the horses, you know, some of them would escape and they just go out and that's where you'd start getting these wild horse, bunches of wild horses. You know, you talk about the Comanches, uh, and that brings to mind the buffalo themselves. Was it like from Texas, West Texas, all the way up into Canada that basically in some kind of a funnel situation, wasn't that the domain of the buffalo? They kind of stayed within that funnel most of the time? Not necessarily. Oh. They, uh, there's stories of buffalo being clear over on, towards the eastern part of the United States, uh, uh, Florida, Georgia, uh, Alabama. Really? Like that, which you wouldn't necessarily think that there would be buffalo over there, but but uh, I've read stories of people that uh, they would go out and, and hunt buffalo. Really? We'll talk about that a little bit. I didn't know that. Go ahead. Yeah, but before the horse hunters, uh, usually they only ventured out on large-scale buffalo hunts during the summer breeding seasons when the herds congregated in huge numbers along major rivers, and in the fall when the herds broke up and traveled in different directions, the Indians returned to their permanent village, and they would fish uh, and harvest crops of corn, beans, and squash. But the horse made it possible to give up farming, and they didn't have to have a permanent home. 
because basically the horse was your home. And with a travoy, the horse could pull all of the possessions, including the huge tents uh, that could withstand winter. So the horse played a huge part in even the hunting of the buffalo. So the Indians rushed to get horses and hunt buffalo on the Great Plains. It was kind of like a slow-motion version of the westward exodus. Uh, many of the tribes that we now think of as dominant Great Plains buffalo hunters, the Crow, the Blackfoot, Sioux, Pawnee, Kiowa, Comanche, uh, they were either weak, small tribes before the horse, or or they were farmers. Okay, but I've got a question there. Okay. Where did they get the uh, idea? When did the light bulb go on, and what tribe was the first to say, huh, if we get horse, we can hunt buffalo? I mean, where did they get the idea that they could use the horse to hunt buffalo? Well, I, I think the fact that they found that, you know, with Cortez bringing those horses over, that they could see that a horse could be tamed and ridden. Ah. And at that point, I think they realized that, you know, they would be much more mobile and be able to chase an animal, whether it's a buffalo or even a antelope or deer or whatever. Okay. So, but these tribes initiated new wars with neighboring tribes and old wars. The Comanche, they left their traditional homeland at the, uh, the Rocky Mountains and the Great Basin. And then they, uh, displaced the Apache from the buffalo-rich lands of the southern plains. The Sioux, they kicked out the Kiowa from the Black Hills and chased them into the southern plains. And at various times, the Sioux and the Cheyenne fought the Crows for control of the best buffalo herds along the Powder River. See, it's not just the whites that have trouble getting along in the neighborhood. It seems like the Indians had the same problem. (laughs) They did. You know, the Crows fought the Blackfoot uh, over... over, Herds along the Yellowstone River. Uh, there was a tribe called the Kansa War Parties. They traveled through the hunting grounds of the Osages, and they killed and left to rot whatever buffalo they could find so the animals wouldn't be able to feed their enemies. Oh and that's kind of contrary to what we've always thought about, uh, you know, when you kill a buffalo they uh, for food, and they used every bit of the buffalo. Yeah. But in this case, they killed uh, the buffalo uh, so that it wouldn't feed their enemies. So for tribes to the west of the Rocky Mountains, like the Nez Perce and the Flatheads, it was a rite of passage for a young man to kill a buffalo on land claimed by their enemies, like the Blackfeet. So this could be, you know, pretty deadly. Um, and the Blackfoot, Blackfeet would actually murder uh, people or other tribes for coming onto their land to kill buffalo. Well, how did they, how did the Indians, I'm, I'm going to ask you this before we run out of time, how did the Indians, before they used the horse, how did they, or what were the methods that they did use to hunt buffalo uh, so that they could get fairly close to them? Well, initially, you know, uh, they used buffalo jumps, uh, and there's buffalo jumps all over uh up into Canada and United States. But other than that, it was basically a bow and arrow and just creeping up. They would put uh, a, a buffalo hide uh, over themselves, and sometimes they would crawl and sometimes make the sound of a uh, like an injured uh, uh, young buffalo. And uh, they would get close enough, they could, uh, and they were a good enough shot with an arrow. 
bow and arrow. They could they could take down Buffalo. Do you think that you, Doctor History, would have the nerve and or the guts to put on a buffalo robe and get into the middle of possibly five thousand buffalo and shoot one with a bow and arrow at the risk of having a stampede? Well, knowing how I handle a bow and arrow, those buffalo would be very safe. I see. I see. <laughs> they they wouldn't even worry about me. They'd just probably ignore me. Okay. But, you know, when the Europeans first made contact with the Native Americans, they were uh, sometimes astounded uh, by the unstoppable desire of the people to wander in search of buffalo. I mean, that, that was their big deal. But, uh, you know, the administrators of Spanish colonies in Mexico... They were troubled by buffalo hunting, so much so that they instituted legislation forbidding hunting of buffalo. Hmm. The governor of Spanish, of a Spanish province handed down the law, and its reason was, uh, and this was in 1806, that, quote, buffalo hunting expeditions in the settlements of this province are the cause of the neglect of families. The expeditions cause settlers to lose interest in stock raising. Hereafter, settlers are not to go out in organized parties for the sole purpose of hunting buffalo. Now, the same trouble came out of Kentucky and Tennessee, where settlers, they didn't want to be bothered with farming and agriculture as long as they could just go out and find a buffalo to kill. Right. So in the vicinity of uh, Big Bone Lick, Kentucky, a man complained, quote, buffaloes were so plenty in the country that little or no bread was used, but that even the children were fed on game facility of gaining which prevented the progress of agriculture until the poor innocent buffaloes were completely extirpated and the other wild animals much thinned. I see. I'm, I'm quoting him. Uh-huh. Now, I don't know what extirpated me. Uh, well, I'm pretty much gone, I think. But let me I ask you, so. the Indian tribes, whether it was the Comanches or the Sioux or whatever, they just about used that buffalo in its entirety, didn't they? Exactly. They used every bit of it. Yeah. But, you know, uh, there may be as many as a half million buffalo now living in uh, North America and 96% of those are uh, privately owned by uh, in ranches, yeah. and they will allow people to come on their ranches and, uh, you know, shoot buffalo, uh, I guess, if that's what they enjoy doing. Uh, I never thought that'd be a great thing to go out in a pasture and shoot a buffalo. I don't see any sport to that whatsoever. No, but, you know, one thing I need to – I know we've only got a minute left, but uh, – Buffalo, the uh, buffalo really is not uh, native to uh, to us here. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, the American bison is is known as the American buffalo, even though buffalo is an entirely separate species. The only real buffalo are the African buffalo, which is found throughout the continent, and the water buffalo, which is found in Asia and Europe. So when we sing "Home on the Range," where the buffalo, you know. <laughs> they're really bison. Well, okay, but wait a minute. Elaborate on that a little bit. You and I both know that uh, they've been called the same in the same uh, stories. I mean, as far as bison and buffalo, etc. But you're saying they're completely different species, correct? They're, they are a different, separate species, yeah. But, you know, the word bison comes from French fur trappers, and somehow the term... 
uh, buffalo. Well, there was a word buff or buffalo. Uh, it was described to any animal whose hide could be used for buff leather. Ah. So essentially the name buffalo could have come from anywhere. Okay. We, we really don't know. So technically they're bison, but we're always going to call them buffalo. Yeah, there's a herd of buffalo less than probably from where I'm sitting right now, about 11 miles away. Uh, there's quite a few of them. Well, and they are used a lot uh, uh, for uh, meat, for restaurants and one thing yeah. or another. So, yeah, they're raising buffalo uh, just as they would cattle in different places. It's really a shame that in the days of the Old West, whether it was the Indian tribes, which they're as uh, guilty, if you will, of extermination of the buffalo as the white uh, hunters, but to take these animals and just put them down to where numbers were almost absolutely scarce, it's unbelievable. Well, especially you know if you consider the millions and millions yeah. of buffalo, yeah. and to think that that, that, hurt, that was pretty much wiped out. Yeah. Did you ever see the movie How the West Was Won? Yeah. Remember that Buffalo scene where if you saw the movie in 3D like I did the first time, I'm sitting at the seat, and all of a sudden here comes the Buffalo from three different angles? That was the end of my juji fruits, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I say, to be on a horse or anything out in the middle of a Buffalo herd, uh, you did not want to get off your horse. Absolutely. So anything else? We've got one minute left exactly. Um, well, I don't think so. Um, again, just, uh, you know, the buffalo that used to roam and uh, is not extinct. And, you know, uh, people that go into Yellowstone Park almost every year, they get out of their car to take a picture of a moose or a buffalo, and uh, they end up on the receiving end of that buffalo or that moose. So uh, they are not a domestic animal, folks. Absolutely. And for $25, you can take, he'll take credit card numbers, whatever. Dr. History will sing to you personally, home on the range. So there you go. Thank you very much.